Afternoon, everyone. Lovely to see you all. I know we've got a few less people here today compared to Sundays normally. A lot of people away today. I was just having a quick chuckle to myself as I was just walking up now. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when we had the church barbecue, Jodie said to me, she said, uh, oh, how are you getting on with your sermon preparation? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's all good, it's all good, thank you. Are you feeling nervous? I'm like, mm, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And she said, well, don't worry, on the Sunday, there's going to be less people there. So less people, less nerves, right? And I like, yeah, yeah. But as I look around today, I'm thinking, uh, Jody, maybe uh, that last part, maybe I'll dispute it a little bit. <laughs> but all jokes aside, guys, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's lovely to see you. And, you know, we're bound by God's love together as a body of, uh, uh, as the body, as his church. So what we, we do, we do in service to one another in love and ultimately in worship and adoration of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 13. Psalm 13, which Rob er read earlier on for us. Now, when we come to the Psalms, we should remember what their primary function is. They are they're primarily songs of the people of God in their gathered worship, and they cover a wide range of experiences and emotions. Now, they give God's people the words to express these emotions and to bring these experiences before God. The Psalms don't just express the emotions of God's people, because when we sing these songs, these hymns, in faith, they shape the emotions of God's people as well. And there are Psalms of all kinds. There are Hymns of praise that call us to admire God's great attributes and his deeds. There are hymns of thanksgiving, which thank God to his answer f uh, for, for his answer to our petitions. Many others as well. And there are also laments, which lay out a troubled situation before the Lord, asking for some help. And at that, there are community laments, which deal with problems facing the community as a whole. And there are individual laments as well, where troubles are facing a particular member of the people of God. And today, this afternoon, it is to a short but quite emotional individual lament that I'd like for us to look at. Psalm 13, which was written by David, the same David that defeated that behemoth of a man, Goliath. This David, he wrote this particular psalm, and it shows a worshiper who is on the verge of despair where his powers of endurance are spent and completely exhausted. Basically, he can't take it any longer. I've been looking at this psalm for myself. I think in the last year and a half, things have been difficult for many people. Um, right now, if you look across the world, there are a lot of situations that are happening where Christians are being caught up in very difficult situations. So it's fair to say that there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, some of you right here, now who have been calling on God about something and perhaps are wondering how long you can go on for, especially when a direct solution hasn't yet been worked out. This is for us, people like us. We're weak and we need to look upon he who is stronger and call out to him. So I want to share with you a little bit about what I've been learning from studying and reading through this particular psalm in the hope that we might all have our emotions shaped by a Christ-like mold, especially in the times where we seem to be calling out relentlessly to the Lord. 
I want us to come to this psalm tenderly, devotionally, as you would when you are reading through the psalms and meditating upon scripture when you're on your own. I want it truly to be a song that we would sing rather than a set of codes that we just recite. Like any song, if you look across modern songs, for example, you know, there's usually a, different, a few different parts to them. A verse, a chorus, a bridge. And like this one here, there are different parts to it. There is the questioning, which is verses 1 and 2, which we'll go through in a minute. There is the prayer for help, the following two verses, 3 and 4. And there's a reaffirmation of trust, 5 and 6. So follow me through as we look at the first part, the questioning, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? When we look at these couple of verses here, you can see that the singer is asking how long four times. The first two times in verse 1 are just different ways of saying exactly the same thing. He feels that the Lord has forgotten him. And it's such a beautiful bit of poetry, rhetorical bit of poetry as well. How long will you forget me forever? It seems as though he's answered his own question. How long will the Lord keep his face from him? Now, being a song, a poem, I think it's quite safe for us to take it at face value that he's not actually after live data, information, is he? He's not waiting for God to say something like, I'll be with you in three weeks. No, what he's doing is he's pouring out his soul. He asks how long because he's obviously been seeking God already. And he's been seeking God for a length of time that he perceives is very long. How long? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't need to tell us. But all we need to know is that he's been seeking God nonetheless. Or else he wouldn't express himself in this way. The abandonment described here is only apparent. It's not that God has actually abandoned the singer. The song describes feelings. It's not making a precise legal statement or a precise treatise. And there are many passages in the Bible that tell us that God does not forsake his people. And David, the author of this very psalm here, he didn't write all of them, but he wrote many of them. He knows that fact. He knows that truth. Because in Psalm 9, verse 12, which he wrote himself, he says that God does not forget the cries of the afflicted. And in verse 2, he goes further with the how long. We now see a picture of what an afflicted person goes through on a daily basis. He takes counsel in his own soul. So he's trying to comfort himself. He's trying to comfort his heart because of the sorrow that he feels all the time. It's like a battle with down-and-out depression. And do you know what's interesting here is that he can only go so far with self-counseling. Because the result is that much of the same repeats itself on a day-by-day -day basis, which shows us the kind of humility that he has to come to the Lord with his situation and not prolong in counseling himself, in seeking self-solutions. He's tried that. It didn't work. That's why he's now calling out to God. He also mentions the enemy. How long will the enemy gloat over his misfortunes and seem to 
even prosper while he is not prospering. Now, the singer is going through a, a lot here. And it's obviously not private because it's clearly caught the attention of this enemy who seems to be doing much better in comparison. Now, I think it's really important to just to take a minute and let's just talk about this term, the enemy. Because not only in this psalm, but there are several psalms where the enemy is spoken of, the enemy is referenced. So I just want us to qualify and understand who the enemy is and what does that mean to us when we read through the psalms and study the psalms and sing through the psalms ourselves. So many psalms call on God for help as the faithful are threatened with harm from enemies who are also known in the scriptures as the wicked. Now, these are people that, un, you know, the unfaithful that persecute the godly. That's basically who they are. And in David's time, this would have been oftentimes gentle, Gentile um, oppressors. Now, in a number of Psalms, not necessarily directly in this one, people of God are requesting help from God, specifically that God punishes the enemy. We don't see that in this one. But I think to myself, with the teaching and the example of Christ, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 38 onwards, where Christ says, if you're slapped on one cheek, offer the other. And there are countless teachings like that. What, what do we make of these references to the enemy in that case? And especially where we do encounter curses toward the enemy. Can, can God's people pray in this way, basically? And I think it's worth noting just a couple of things about this. Firstly, the enemy is never an enemy of trivial things. These are people who hate the faithful precisely for their faith. They mock God and they use ruthless and deceitful means to suppress the godly. If you want to turn to Psalm 94, let's have an ex you know look at you know an example of this. So go to Psalm 94. And I'm just going to read through verses 2 to 7. Scripture is its own interpreter, so I don't need to really say too much here. But Psalm 94, verse 2. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and, the mur and they murder the, the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Can you see who the enemy is here? The other thing to, to consider about when we talk about the enemy and, uh, and seeing how David is referring to the enemy here is that curses, if you come across a curse in the Psalms that are directed at the enemy in the Psalms, these are written in poetic form, of course, and they can use extravagant and vigorous expressions. For example, in Psalm 10, 15, where the, the singer there is calling upon God to break the arm of the evildoer. Of course, the exact fulfillment of how that happens is left to God. But you just have to bear that in mind, that what we read is also poetic. Curses, another thing is, curses are expressions of moral indignation. In other words, the people of God are disgusted at the depravity of the unregenerate person's heart and their attitude towards God. It's not of personal vengeance. 
You know, for someone who knows God, such as David, our singer here, it's unbearably wrong that those who persecute the faithful, those that cause the faithful to turn away from God, should get away with it. And then on top of that, even seem to prosper. So these types of psalms are actually, even what we read here, it's actually a prayer to God to vindicate himself so that he can display his righteousness for all to see. And lastly, it's something to consider while we think about how to, what to make of the enemy references. The Old Testament forbids personal re- revenge. Leviticus and Proverbs, there are tons of verses that refer to this. And so Christians should keep as our deepest desire that others, even those who hurt the church, should be led to repentance. That they would come to trust in Christ and to love his people. And there are many passages in the New Testament that follow this Old Testament guideline and yet point out and reach out to that end for enemies. For example, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, where it says, God desires that all people be saved and to know the truth. That's what he desires. Of course, that's not going to be the outcome because people are resilient in their sin. But that's what he desires. So with all things in All of these things that we just talked about in mind, regards to the enemy, it is still possible for us to, as a church, to read and to sing through the Psalms, even the difficult ones, even where there are references to the enemy and where there are references to curses. Specifically, when it takes place in the context of worship, like today, under the guidance of wise leadership, where it's been explained, and if it serves for the good of the people of God. So I just wanted to take an aside there just to refer to that because it's quite an important thing. And if anything, at the end of today, I'd encourage you to read through the Psalms for yourself, starting with the one that we're studying right now. So what do we learn from what we've read in verse 1 and 2? Well, simply this is what I've learned, is that it's okay to express your feelings to God. Even when we feel that it's he himself that seems not to be helping our situation by seeming to prolong it it's okay to express your feelings to God I think it's the right of every Christian to be authentic and genuine before God in all circumstances such as David is being here because when we're called into a relationship with him it's exactly that we're called into a relationship now you guys look at your own relationships those whom you're closest with friends spouses and so forth Are your relationships one-dimensional? Probably not. More like multi-terrain landscapes. On the most part, they're smooth. But sometimes there are burrows and little hills and patches like that to navigate. And that's how it is sometimes with God. Not through any fault of his own, but because we're weak. Because we don't know the future. Because we're fallible. Because we have sin. We don't understand everything. And you know, it's okay to acknowledge that on the one hand, but it also doesn't give us license to foul-mouth God or blame him for any suffering or misfortunes that we might have to endure. That's a natural consequence of living in a fallen world where everyone, believers included, you and I, were not immune to some kind of suffering. God didn't cause that. He never causes it. And the Bible teaches us that. But he allows suffering. 
Not because he's sadistic, but because he wants to fashion something out of us through that. No one in the Old Testament understood that better than Job. If you look at the life of Job, back in Job 1, Job 2, you'll see how Job was a faithful, blameless person before the Lord. He feared God immensely. He was also wealthy. He was prosperous. And you know the story, right? Satan goes up to God and says, he's only faithful to you because you've given him so much. If you would afflict him, he will curse you. God didn't cause Job's afflictions, but he allowed Satan to afflict him. And after his property was taken, after he'd lost his children, after his own health failed him, his wife in Job chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, how do you hold on to your integrity now? Just curse God and die. And Job said, should we receive good from the Lord and not evil? Not saying that God has caused the evil, but he has allowed it. And it finishes off, verse 10, saying that Job did not sin with his lips. He did not curse the Lord. He didn't go that far. The point being, we will endure suffering. Going through suffering now, perhaps, many of you. But stop short at foul-mouthing God or blaming him. That is not a response that comes from the heart of the people of God. Furthermore, James 1 tells us what the point of suffering is. If you want, you can turn to James 1, have a quick look at that. It's such a helpful verse when you're going through any form of suffering. James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces, what? Steadfastness, in my translation, steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What an encouragement there. Steadfastness, meaning loyalty in the face of trouble. That quality makes us like absolutely nothing, says James. It completes us and is rewarded by God. Let's look ahead then to the second part of the song, the prayer for help in verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So for God to consider and answer the singer would be for him to relieve the singer's circumstances, right? Some commentators take that phrase, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, to mean that the song was written probably at a time of severe illness. Now, it doesn't tell us that. I don't know what the background was at the time of David writing this. If you look through the life of David, he was someone that was troubled a lot, family problems, so much being chased by King Saul, under threat all the time. So it could have been a number of circumstances in which he wrote this particular psalm. But whether or not he was facing illness is not the point. But it's quite clear that he's asking God to relieve him lest he sinks into an even worse condition. I think that's something that we can all identify with from time to time. And again, he talks about the enemy. He says, Lord, if I sink into a, a deeper state of depression here, my enemy will think he's won. 
he will be glad because I'll be completely debilitated. Now, I know we talked a little bit about the enemy, but I want you to turn to Psalm 73. And I'm going to read again. Let scripture interpret itself. Read from verses 3 to 11. So you can see again in this context what he's referring to. Verse 3 of Psalm 73. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Again, we're seeing here that mockery that gloating enemy that is rejoicing in his own apparent success and the fact that they are defiant before God and his people whilst God's people suffer. Now, what do I learn from that? Well, this. I think that as a body of believers, if you look at um, Christians worldwide, we're obviously a minority and we're constantly facing pressure and there are calls to sort of make us turn away from our faith, to deface the name of God, and so forth. But it makes me think of those people that understand this on a, at a personal level. Those of you, some of you here, watching online and so forth, that you come from a home where you're the only Christian, a background where you are the only Christian where you've been mocked for it as well, where at every point in your life where you've experienced some kind of difficulty, whether through your own fault or otherwise, other people around you have used it to say, where is your God now? Where is your God now? What, where's your dumb faith? Get a grip. Snap out of it. This is a fantasy. And I know there are people here today that feel that, that when you encounter troubles in your life, you know that those voices will start to sound off again. And frankly, you might be sick and tired of it. Even potentially angry at God for allowing it. Because it goes on all the time. But don't forget our psalm here. Our singer, David. He asks the Lord to consider an answer. What he's doing is he's praying. The question is, are you praying? Or are you too busy in self-pity, in anger against the Lord, perhaps, that you can't pray. You're encouraged to find it in your circumstances to pray. Pray earnestly, sincerely, but reverently. Know that you're coming before the throne of grace, the commander of armies, the Lord of hosts. That, that's what that phrase means. And this is who we are praying to. Because he is sovereign and God can really consider and answer your situation. Romans 8 tells us that God uses all for the good of his people. That means, that all means good 
experiences and circumstances as well as bad. Don't focus on other people's reactions, even though they are real and they're not to be downplayed on, but focus on the sovereign one, the one who holds both your salvation and their fate in his hands. He's the one that you should direct your attention to and focus on. I want you to turn back to Psalm 73, where we looked at a second ago, this time, verses 16 to 20. Psalm 73, verses 16 to 20. And I want you to see here why we shouldn't focus on the enemy. The enemy's fate is in the hands of God. And look at how it unplays here. 16. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Don't focus on the enemy. Don't worry about what the enemy is doing. Focus on the sovereign one. He has it all under control. Now, let's move on to the next part then. The final part, which is the reaffirmation of trust. And this is in verses 5 and 6. So we're back to Psalm 13. And it says here, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. In verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, it's like this is the chorus of the song. Up until now, the, the singer has questioned God and he's asked him to intervene. He's basically, the words that he's been using, he's painted this bleak picture of the emotional mess that he's found himself in. And so you'd think that by the end of this song, the chorus would repeat some aspects of the singer's hardship from before to reiterate that point that he is suffering and that he needs God's intervention quickly. But instead, and this is what makes it so glorious, instead he takes a different route altogether. It's like a key change that you'd find in a song, especially when it's unexpected. He belts out the fact Rather, that he has trusted in God's love, which he describes as steadfast. That same word we came across when we looked at the James passage. Here, God has been steadfast, has been faithful. Did you know that we, as God's people, we are beneficiaries of his faithfulness? He is faithful to himself. He is faithful to his own word. And when he fulfills his word, we are the ones that benefit from that. So he is steadfast. So our singer here knows that God has been loyal to him in the past and in the face of trouble before. Remember, this is David. Again, the same David who as a young man did what? Defeated someone that the whole of the Israel, uh, Israelite army couldn't defeat. And he defeated him single-handedly with the help of the Lord. So he knows and understands that the Lord has been with him before. And he knows what it is to trust in that. Even in the hardship, he rejoices in the salvation that God gives. Now, what does it mean to rejoice 
in the salvation that God gives to us? Well, I think it's to be extremely happy, content, satisfied about a couple of things. Firstly, that God has saved you. He adopted you, drafted you into his family at a point in your past because he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross to atone for your sins. Should have been you, but it was him. And he vindicated him and he, was ro- he rose again from the dead. He saved you. He is also saving you. That's where he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to work with us where we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and become holier by the day. And that is saving us because he's making us perfect. And he will save you on that judgment day. You will be spared the wrath of God. And you will be glorified. We've talked about glorification in the last couple of Sundays where Kevin's mentioned glorification. You'll be glorified, given a a body that is free from illness, which is powerful, which is fit for eternal existence with God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in his dwelling place eternally. When your time on this painful earth is no more, these are the promises that we can hold on to. And the singer thinks of that defining moment in his own history and when he was drafted into God's family. And he also simultaneously thinks of the future when he will reside with his father in the heavenly place after the trials are finished. And then he also sings because he knows of instances when God has dealt bountifully or in other translations it might read favorably with him. find that really interesting here verse 6 this last one because if throughout this psalm so far it's mainly been an intimate outpouring of the singer's own heart toward God it's written in mainly in first person narrative me to you God the weaker to the stronger the afflicted one to the immutable one and any reference we've seen to any third party any third person so far has been that enemy that we've talked about, that outsider who hates God, who from the sidelines desires the failure and the destruction of that covenant member. That's been the third person so far. And even in that key change, verse 5, when instead of singing more about his lament and, and his suffering, we have that unexpected and glorious change where he's now affirming his trust in God, it still starts off as me to you, God. He doesn't say you, O God. He refers now in verse 6 to God in the third person. He says, he has dealt bountifully with me. Third person. So my question was, hang on a second. Where's the second person gone here? Who is the second person? Because it seems to me that the singer so far has looked to God. He's called to him directly And in this epiphany that he's experiencing now, that he's shouting about now in verses 5 and 6, he realizes he is blessed beyond measure, and it's as if he turns, arms outstretched, and he's now singing out. What he's doing is he's proclaiming something to whoever is within earshot of this last part. And you know, as I thought, thought about it, we, me, you, here, right now, the readers of this passage, the covenant members, we're in full proximity to the singer. We're in earshot of what he's proclaiming. We can hear this. He's talking to us. 
the singer vows to sing and is singing to himself and to us and even to the enemy who's on the sideline take note of the singer's experiences. He's proclaiming how favorably God has dealt with him before. And as I think about that, I look at it and I think this is what a model of dealing with dark days this is. What an antidote to wallowing in depression because we see a progression of his emotional condition here from being at his lowest ebb as a man recounting his situation to God finding no fulfillment in counseling himself conscious of what the haters will think of him to then seeing the glory of God in his life God's hand upon him as it has been in the past as it is now in the present as it will be in the future and then finally proclaiming the truth of God's attributes from beyond himself to anyone that will hear. And I think it's something that if we would do more of that ourselves, we wouldn't dwell too much or too long within our hard times in suffering. And you know, as a man, Christ himself endured much suffering and he died, but he was glorified. He was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And as his body, we're also promised. If you read Colossians 1.18, we're promised the same because it describes him as the firstborn of the dead. That means there are others that will follow suit, us. Now, you might have been going through a lot in your lives, um, been scarred emotionally, maybe rendered insecure at some times by what you've gone through. But when you stop to think, you'll see how God has dealt bountifully, favorably with you at all times, at every painful junction in your life. To this day, you might still be facing some very serious challenges, challenges that cause you to sing out the very words of this psalm here today. But you know what? Yeah, we're encouraged not to stop at the questioning. It is okay to express our feelings to God. We're encouraged not to stop at the prayer. We have to pray and we should pray. We're encouraged actually to sing this glorious chorus, sing the whole psalm right through to its end, where we affirm, reaffirm our trust in God, where we're reminded of God's faithfulness to us in the past and how that's a wonderful indication of his faithfulness to us in the present and in the time to come. We're encouraged not to focus on those that have and will mock you because of your faith and because of your suffering. But we are called to remember our salvation in Christ and our glorification to come. No matter how dire the situation, like our singer here today that we've read about, you know, we always have a reason to rejoice. And that is really the crux, the real center point of what I wanted to share with you today, that God's children always have a reason to rejoice because it is in Christ and because of Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, despite our hardships, still deal, deals bountifully with us all. So let that shape our emotions when your emotions are under duress. Sing the psalm, sing it right through to the end. You know, there's a reason why Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher in the 1800s, his most influential and very important written study of the Psalms is called 
the treasury of David. Because he saw, and I, th- and I hope that we can see now, that the Psalms, to someone who is discouraged, is a source of encouragement, isn't it? To, to the dying soul, it is a source of medicine. And to the brokenhearted, it is a source of comfort. And what a treasure it is to find Psalm 13 and to sing it through to its glorious end. We're about to sing another song in a few moments. Uh, Great is thy faithfulness, which is a wonderful hymn, which really, thanks to Mark having chosen it, what a great choice, because it really ties in lovely with what we've just been looking at, particularly this glorious chorus of Psalm 13 that we've just been discussing, where we can sing about his faithfulness and personify that and live it through ourselves. Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to see in it the truths that you have established from eternity ago, Lord, and you have made them available to us that we might be encouraged, that our hearts and our spirits may be stirred up to love you more, Lord, to grow, Lord, we see how you have been faithful to David and to your people and to ourselves, Lord. We thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that as we go about our different ways, starting a new week, that the words of this psalm will reverberate in our minds and our hearts, Lord. Whatever anyone is going through here, Lord, that is causing them stress and duress, I pray that they will find comfort in this psalm and to pour themselves out to you, Lord, and that you would consider and answer and cause them to reflect and remember how faithful you have been, how faithful you are, and how faithful you will continue to be. Thank you in the name of Jesus, we pray.